The book of, I'm going to ask you to turn to Acts chapter 12. Chris, do you want to get your stuff? Or you could sit here. Yeah. All right. Chris permits Chris to sit back there. All right. Let's open up in Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12. We'll start there. We're in the book of Mark. The quickest gospel, <laughs> the shortest gospel, and just the, the narrative itself is fast. Uh, Acts chapter 12. So there's uh, 16 chapters, 678 verses, 14,009. I'm oh, sorry, I said that backwards. 668. There's a typo, I think, on your sheet, possibly. Is that a typo? Oh, good. It's on my sheet, not yours. 678 verses, 14,949 words. Uh, John is mentioned um, seven times in the New Testament, at least, four times in the book of Acts, and three times in Paul's writings, which is an interesting breakdown. Uh, Mark, John Mark is the author, and Mark was not an apostle. Right? He was an associate of an apostle. He was just an ordinary worker. And he had his ups and downs, and he had his failures. And, and, uh, but you know, it just reminds you that God is faithful, that just an ordinary worker wrote this gospel, wrote it under the tutelage of an apostle, Peter, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, but uh, just an ordinary guy. And you read in Acts chapter 13, I think it is, uh, he fails. He departs the work. And they're fighting about him in Acts 15. And at the end of his life, Paul is asking for him. So uh, just because you mess up or you trip and stumble and fall doesn't mean you're out. <laughs> if you're breathing, you're not out. God gives you another chance. And God gave John Mark another chance. And it seems like John Mark got back in. Because by the end, Paul's saying, bring John Mark for he's profitable for me for the ministry. So what a change from Acts 15 where he's like, yo, I don't want this guy with me. And him and Barnabas actually part fellowship over John Mark. Uh, Acts 12, 12, it says, um, And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where, were gathered to get, where many were gathered together praying. So Mark, uh, John Mark, Mark, however you want to call him, was the son of one of the New Testament Marys and a person of comfortable status. This Mary seemed to have a big enough house to have all the disciples over at a prayer meeting. So this Mary that was his mother seemed to have some stuff. Go to Colossians 4.10. Who else is John Mark? Let's look at Colossians 4.10. Colossians 4.10. Colossians 4.10. Here's John Mark mentioned again. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you, and Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas. So John Mark was also the nephew to Barnabas kind of sheds a little light why he and Paul had such a disagreement about him. Because Barn uh, Mark was family to Barnabas, and Barnabas wanted to take Mark, give him another chance, and Paul's like, no, he departed us. I'm not trusting this guy. He shouldn't show himself faithful. And in Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas part ways, and Barnabas is never mentioned again in the book of Acts. What are they fighting about? John Mark, his nephew. How about 1 Peter chapter 5? One more, one more other big famous person in, in Mark's life. 1 Peter 5.13. 1 Peter 5.13. The church that is at Babylon, this is Peter writing now, right? The church that is at Babylon elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus, my son. So John Mark may have been converted under Peter because he calls him his son, and the same way Paul might call Timothy his son or other people his son, that is like his offspring in the faith, possibly, possibly, right? Possibly. 
Um, but at the very least, he was Peter's companion and he was Peter's recorder. So he's like recording things probably from Peter. So everything, all these gospels have an apostle direct, directly related to them. Some of them are the apostles themselves, right? Matthew was an apostle. Mark was not an apostle, but he's under the tutelage of an apostle and getting the, the events from Peter. So it's still under the umbrella of an apostle. Now the book, what is usually taught, and I'll just throw this out at you, the book is typically said to be written at Rome for the Romans. Uh, why do people say that? Because there are very few references to Old Testament scriptures here, as if that audience might not even know what those things are. And uh, the Jewish words in this gospel are explained, right? like they're defined and explained, which doesn't happen in, let's say, Matthew. There's a lot of Latin words that are used in the book of Mark, and that Latin was the language of the Roman Empire. Words like the legion, the centurion, these are Roman terms used in the book of Mark. And the tone is very impulsive. It's very short. It's very abrupt. It really reminds you of Peter, because <laughs> Peter was that impulsive guy. And you see some of that reflected in the writings of Mark. And uh, the book of Mark, so action-driven, was really fitted for the Roman. The Romans were not into long speeches, but they were people of action. And so you see the book of Mark so much about actions. So uh, what is a key word? Straightway. Appears 19 times. More than any other book of the Bible, the word straightway appears. Um, straightway means immediately, without delay, right? Uh, quickly. That's the attitude of a servant, right? A servant should answer straightway. And that's what is a key word in the book of Mark, straightway. Um, key verse, let's go back to Mark now. We'll spend some time. Plenty of seats up here. You need a paper? You need, some, you need a paper? Somebody give, somebody give, somebody give Mr. Mayette a paper there. He feels left out. He feels excluded. There's chairs here too, but if you want to sit on the desk, everybody to, to each his own. Or in French, à chacun son goût, right? That's how you say it, to each his own. All right, that's what I remember from French class. Mark chapter 10. That and how to say the Hail Mary in French. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Here's the key verse of the book. Key verse of the book. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give His life a ransom for many. So Jesus Christ is pictured as God's servant. Matthew is the king. Mark is the servant. And you'll notice that Mark is the shortest because it emphasizes His actions over His words. Servants act. So Mark is a very action-driven, it is sparse on its description, it's short on its narrative, but it's heavy on its action. Mark contains less parables than Matthew. There's a lot of parables in Matthew. There's only like four in the book of Mark. Right? It's not about what Jesus Christ is saying in the book of Mark. The book of Mark, conversely, contains more miracles than any gospel. So the least amount of parables, or less parables, I should say, because John has very few parables of any, uh, but more miracles. Because it's not about what Jesus Christ is saying in the book of Mark. It's about what the servant is doing in the book of Mark. Servants serve. They act. And the breakdown, as you've been quick to tell me, is very simple. One to ten, the servant is presented. You see in there, it talks about his work and obedience in life and service. That's what the first uh, chapters 1 to 10 are. Chapters 11 to 16 are his work and obedience in death 
and sacrifice. So that's a nice kind of division for you to remember. So now we're going to just kind of walk through uh, the book of Mark. Um, let me grab this over here. This is not a Bible. That's why I'm throwing it. But, Mary, I'm going to need you to, in a little bit, I'm going to need you to find a verse in that, all right, and read it for me. Right, there's a few fake Bibles out there, so we're going to turn to that in a second. Let's read Mark 1, and let's read 1 to 3, okay? It says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Please notice, there is no genealogy in the book of Mark. A very different emphasis than Matthew. The emphasis in Matthew is on who the king is, his identity. So we get a long list of names to show his pedigree as a son of Abraham and a son of David. But in the book of Mark, the emphasis is on what the servant does and his ministry. So his pedigree is not important. All right? Now look at verse 9 to 11. It says, whoops. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John and Jordan. Straightway, there's that word, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Notice, Mark begins with a very abbreviated account of Christ's baptism. It's just a few verses in here. It's longer in John, it's longer in Luke, it's longer in Matthew. It's very abbreviated. But it starts with the baptism because the baptism of Jesus Christ marks the beginning of his ministry. Right? I don't know if he was healing birds at 15. I don't know if he was fixing his brother's you know, twisted ankle. He had brothers and sisters, by the way. If he was fixing his brother's twisted ankle from a vicious game of soccer or something like that, you know, after they play soccer out there. Um, not basketball. That's not until James Nay Smith. But anyway, um, I don't, none of that stuff is recorded because his ministry, his actions, his public service didn't begin until his baptism. So it's fitting to me that the book that's all about his service begins at his baptism, right? The servant begins, and you'll notice verse 23, verse 30, verse 32, verse 40. The servant's ministry is to people. 23, there's a guy in the synagogue with an unclean spirit. Verse 30, he's helping, his, he's helping uh, Simon's... Whew, can't say it still. The old Catholic in me twitches. Simon's wife's mother, right? He's helping out his mother-in-law. That's what you got to do when you're, you know, you got to help out your mother-in-law. And then... Um, 32 to 34, he's, he's helping a whole bunch of people. Verse 40, he's helping a leper. So I want you to see that right away. The servant is thrown into ministry, and that ministry is serving people, helping people. The first chapter is just exploding with all the people that he's helping. I want to give you two takeaways from this little stop in the book of Mark. First takeaway, if you want to serve God, the Lord doesn't care about your past. He didn't make note of Jesus Christ's past. And if you're willing to serve God, he's not going to get too hung up on your past. Your pedigree is not a real big deal to God if you're willing to just roll up your sleeves and do something for him. Sometimes we make a big deal out of it, but God says, I'm just looking for some willing hearts. Uh, second takeaway, if you want to minister, you're going to minister to people. <laughs> because as Pastor Mel told us very aptly, the ministry is people. So this guy gets thrown into service. I mean, this guy, 
forgive me, right? Jesus Christ gets thrown into service, right? But it's people, it's people, it's people. So that's a good takeaway. And I want to show you something else in Mark chapter 1, verse 2. And if Josh, Mario, and Pete would find those verses in their so-called Bibles, I want you to please notice that here is another reason why... Josh got the leather one, all right? Uh, it's good to be burned, though. Mark 1, verse 2. Let's read in our King James Bible, and I'll show you another reason why the King James Bible is correct to say prophets, plural. It says it is written in the prophets, plural. It says that because in that verse, the Holy Spirit is quoting not one prophet, but two prophets. He's quoting Malachi 3.1 in the beginning of the verse, and then he's quoting Isaiah chapter 40 in the latter part of the verse. But let's hear from, Pete, let's hear from your Bible. I think you have the Holdman Christian Standard Bible, right? Uh, yep. Yep. How, what's that say? Nice and loud. So, uh, just the first verse? Just Mark 1-2, yeah. Yeah. Uh, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Oh, what is it, what does yours say, Mary? You got the New Living Translation? Interesting. Josh, you got the NIV, that not inspired version. What does that say? It is written in Isaiah the prophet. Wow. I let them read it so you don't think I'm faking it, right? All these Bibles, all these Bibles, the ESV does it too. I couldn't find my ESV. I think it was on the toilet paper roll. But anyway, as it is written Isaiah the prophet, that's wrong. That is incorrect. He's quoting two prophets, and all these versions are saying he's quoting one prophet. That's a false start for a false Bible. You say, why are you, make it, why are you making a big deal out of it? It's wrong. <laughs> Would you use a history book that says Abe Lincoln was the first president of the United States? You'd say, no, throw that thing out. That thing has got errant material in it. Throw that thing out. Please don't throw mine out because I need it for an illustration and discipleship too. But throw those things out. They're good for kindling. Right? They're not Bibles. They've got mistakes in them. Let's go to Mark before I get on the thing. Mark chapter 1. Let's go back to verse 12. I want you to see in Mark 1, 12, the faithfulness of the servant. In verse 1 to 3, we saw the genealogy of the servant is lacking. In verses 12 and 13, we see the faithfulness of the servant, that God's servant is faithful in the little things. See, it says there, And immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts. Please notice that Mark's gospel is the only gospel that says that Jesus was with the wild beasts in his temptation. Before he goes out for service, he's contending, it looks like, with the wild beasts. You remember David before he faced Goliath? Didn't he go up against some wild beasts? He says, My, thy servant slew a lion and a bear, and so shall this Philistine be. See the parallel? David took on some wild beasts before he faced his big call against Goliath. And Jesus Christ was in the wild beast before he faced on and took on sin, death, and hell on the cross. Before his earthly ministry began, he's with the wild beast. What is the lesson? To serve God, you've got to overcome the little beasts before facing the giants. You know, God never sends, as Pastor Mel used to say, never sends green troops into battle. You're not going to come up against Goliath if you can't deal with that little lion and that bear. So you got to face off with the wild beast so God can get you ready and prove you faithful for the giants later on in your life. Now, this is going to be a big division, but from Mark 1, verse 14, all the way through chapter 13, 
It's the servant at work. It's the servant at work. It's the servant at work. And I want to show you some of the characteristics and the nature of God's servant. What was he like? And you could list these. I don't have an eraser. I'd erase it up here and start writing them. Maybe I'll just use my hand. I lost my eraser. I forgot where it ended up. There we go. Let me write. There we go. I don't need this hand anyway. All right. Wax on, wax off. All right, here we go. All right, I'll do this way. All right, so some characteristics of teachers don't mess around. We're survivors. We, figure, we adapt. Oh, look at that. Thank you. Just a few seconds late. <laughs> Wait a minute. I feel like, oh. <laughs> but anyway, uh, some characteristics of his work. First, I want to I'm not going to read all these verses, but the first characteristic you see in verses 16 to 20 is that he is a wise servant. You see his wisdom in the people that he selects to serve alongside of him as, these, as his 12, right? These were not just flippant choices. Um, if you're going to serve God, you've got to have some wisdom. I hope you have some wisdom out of the book. The Lord giveth wisdom out of his mouth, cometh knowledge and understanding. Hopefully you've got some wisdom like Jesus Christ had wisdom. I think even in that chapter you were talking to me about Pete, uh, Pete uh, Isaiah 11 talks about the spirit of wisdom and understanding being upon the Messiah, right? He had wisdom. Look at the uh, next chunk of verses is 21 to 28. He is the authoritative servant. You see him with authority and power over all of these things. He's got authority over over devils. He's got authority over the elements. He's got authority over death, and he's raising people from the dead. He's got authority over the opinions of men. They say, wow, look at this guy talk. He's got such authority. You need an authority if you're going to serve God. You can't serve God with three Bibles on your pulpit. That's not an authority. That's double-mindedness, right? You need one authority. Children can't grow the right way if they don't have mom and dad on the same page as one authority in their life. If it's, you know, mom is playing against dad and dad's playing against mom, that kid is caught in the crossfire, right? They got to be on the same page. That's got to be one authority in that home that makes the child secure. It lets them grow and prosper. And as a Christian, if you're still bouncing around wondering, what did God say? You've got no power over devils, no power over anything else. You need the power comes from the fact that you've got an authority. Where the word of a king is, there is power. You've got the power of God in that scripture right there. He said, ye do therefore err, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. That's the authority. That's what Jesus Christ, that, where he drew his authority from, the word of God. Look at verses 40 to 41 of chapter 1. I want to show you, I'll read these. That he was a compassionate servant. Look at 40. This is a leper. I just wiped my nose with my dirty fingers. All right. 40, 41. So if I have a black nose, please. I'm not doing anything weird. All right. I'm not Justin Trudeau. All right. 40, 41. And there came a leper to him, beseeching him, and kneeling down to him, and saying unto him, If thou wilt, Thou canst make me clean. Can you see this leper coming over to Jesus Christ and uh, just being, you know, so sickly, so diseased and outcast, you know, 
body parts have fallen off, you're wrapped in bandages, you're scorned as a social outcast. And he comes up to the Messiah and he says, Thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And 41, and Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him. That's a big step. Listen, some kid's sneezing in my class and he goes to hand me something, I ain't touching it. <laughs> you know, he's all, it's my homework. Okay, keep it. <laughs> all right, I take your word for it, all right? But this guy comes up and he's like, Lord, Master, you know, if you could, and he reaches out and he touches him. Why? Because he was moved with compassion. Jesus Christ was motivated by compassion. What is supposed to move us to serve? Compassion. We go to that fair, God willing, on Sunday, look at all these people, maybe living it up, maybe excited, maybe having a great time, and that little devil gets on your shoulder and says, oh, you're spoiling their fun, you're going to break up the party. No, just picture them in hell. Just picture them burning. Picture them like that leper and reach out with compassion and try to, as the Bible says, some have compassion making a difference. Compassion will make a difference in somebody's life if you let that motivate you. Look at verse 35, show you something else. I'm just giving you some qualities of the servant, God's servant. We see he is the prayerful servant. He's just getting going in chapter 1. In verse 35 it says, And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. He is the prayerful servant. Are you serving without praying? Jesus didn't. You think you can? That's crazy talk right there. I've been quoting Hudson Taylor a lot. I'll give you one more. I finished the book, so I'll stop. But Hudson Taylor said, when we work, we work. When we pray, God works. See the difference? When we work, we work. We'll put the tracks out. We'll do this. We'll do that. We'll set up the chairs. We'll do this. You know. But when we pray, God works. And there's a domain that you and I can't reach. <laughs> we can't reach the heart of man. You got neighbors you're witnessing to, you know, you can't reach, you can reach them with your words, but that's not going to reach their heart. <laughs> I got people you're trying to, loved ones you're trying to get saved, right? People that maybe can't reach on the other side of the world. Who can reach them? God can reach them, right? We like to talk to men about God, but will we talk to God about men? That's a challenge, right? Mark 1.36, look over there. I want you to notice also that he is the composed servant. He's a busy bee, but he's not stressing. He's not fretting. He's not frazzled. Look at Mark 1.36. It says, And Simon and they that were with him followed after him, and when they had found him, they said unto him, All men seek for thee. That's a tall order. Everybody wants, a, wants something from you, Jesus. 38. And he said unto them, Let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also. For therefore came I forth, and he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee, and cast out devils. He was busy, but calm. Active, but not fretting. And God's servant has to be so submitted. See, God's servant is submitted. Submission isn't you just sitting like a lotus flower, you know, still like a monk in a monastery somewhere. God wants you to be active. God wants you to be busy. God wants you to be moving, right? How are those tracks going to get on doorknobs? How are those prayers going to get prayed? You've got to bend that knee. You've got to reach out that hand. Like Things have to get done. Stuff's got to get set up. Things got to get carried around. Yeah, but in all of that, you've got to be so submitted that you're still at peace. 
that you're not like pulling your hair out and getting stressed out over this stuff. Even if you're about your father's business, Jesus Christ was still composed. We doing okay so far? You're all so far away. Um, go to chapter 2, verse 1. Here's another one. He is the on-duty servant. I'll explain that. Mark 2, 1. And again, he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house. Right? Please notice that the servant of God is never off-duty. Even when he was retired to a house, even when he stepped off the public scene, he's not healing, he's not preaching, he's retired to somebody's house, maybe trying to do a little bit of rest. They're finding him in the house. They're busting up the roof and lowering people down so they can get to him in the house. And if you're going to serve God, you're not an Uber who gets to pick when he works. You can't just say, okay, I'm on duty now. I'll pick a few rides and make a few bucks. God says, if you're going to serve me, you're always on duty. You'll notice something very interesting about the book of Mark. Twelve out of the 16 chapters start with the word end. As if to say, the servant's work never stops. It's a continuous motion. It's a continuous ministry. And this, and that, and this, and that. It's not like a, a treatise. It's, he's always going because he's always on duty. How about this one? Number seven. Go to Mark chapter 3. He is the spending servant. I don't mean money. I mean himself. If you serve the Lord, it's going to cost you, saints. Amen, Brother Pat. It's going to cost you. I would like to say that you can give God your all and it's always going to be sunshine and rainbows. Kids are always going to be healthy. Joy is always going to fill your heart. The nights will always be singing, and there'll be just sweet peas and carrots all over the place. I don't know what that has to do with joy, but I heard it in a movie once. But it's not. If you're going to lay your all on the altar and follow the path of the Nazarene, there's going to be nights of all-night prayer meetings with God. There's going to be uh, uh, Gethsemane moments. There's going to be uh, uh, moments where they don't understand you. There's going to be moments where they want to lead you to the brow of a hill and throw you over it. Like, there's going to be those moments because you're following the path of the Nazarene, the one who spent it all, and it cost him to serve for us, and it's going to cost you to serve for him. You want to know some things that cost him? Mark chapter 3. Let me show you some things that cost him. Mark 3, 5. Cost him some grief. But when he had, and when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. It cost Jesus Christ so much grief. Serving God's going to grieve you sometimes, especially when you see the hardness of people's hearts. When you just, you're, you're pouring out your life, you're ministering, you're singing the songs of Zion, you're hearing the messages preached, and you look to your left, and the person next to you is just an adamant stone. Or you reach out to somebody in love, and you plead with them, and you try, and it's just like throwing rocks against a brick wall, and you just don't know what you're doing wrong, and you're not doing anything wrong, but it grieves you. Jesus Christ was grieved for the hardness of their hearts. That's why when Paul talks to Timothy and he says, Thou therefore endure hardness 
as a good soldier. He's not talking about rough conditions in his house. The fact that he didn't have like a, a nice mattress. He's talking about the fact that you are going to be a pastor, Timothy, and you're going to preach to people and pour your life out for people, and they're going to give you the proverbial Sicilian salute and tell you to go do what, they, what you want to do with that verse you just told them. And you're going to be sitting there with tears in your eyes and be trying to do you want the best for them, and they're not going to care, and that's just hardness. You've got to endure hardness. It's going to grieve you. Look at Mark chapter 7. It's just the characteristics of the servant and his work. That's what we're looking at here. And then we'll just do some, a big takeaway. Um, oh, I'm doing good. Mark chapter 7, verse 34. You know what else is going to cost you? Let's see what happens in 34. See what he does in 734? And looking up to heaven, he sighed. Look at chapter 8, verse 12. <clears throat> and he sighed deeply in his spirit. And saith, why doth this generation seek after a sign? You know, it's also going to cost you many sighs. Cost Jesus Christ many sighs. You know what caring for others can be? Stressful. You know what a sigh is? <sighs> Just like a little bit of stress you got to release. And... Uh, I think it was Paul that talked about all the things going on. He said, not just the thing without, but the care of all the churches weighs upon him daily. And it's real, man. I feel like sometimes I could put it on a scale. You could feel it sometimes. Just And sometimes you just got to, all right, let's go on. Mark 8.31, something else that cost Jesus that it might cost you. 8.31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. Cost Jesus Christ his life to serve. Why should it cost you any less? I don't mean you've got to sign up to be a martyr. But if you're really going to serve God, no man can serve two masters. It's either all on the altar, he that is not with me is against me. If you don't gather, you're scattering, right? You're one or the other. God's, God's not about this, like, you know, on your own time, come as you are and, you know, do what you want to do. And I just love, yeah, he loves you. But if you really want to serve him, like Jesus Christ served him, it was a total consecration. It was a burnt offering. There was nothing left on the altar. You put it all out there. And it seems like a radical idea to say that. It's radical to my flesh to even have it come out of my mouth, those words. I don't want to be the villain and say those things to you. I know the implication of that. But if you're going to say, I have decided to follow Jesus, and that means all, yeah. right, on the altar. How about another one? Go to Mark chapter 3. I won't stay there long because I don't like being on that point either. Mark chapter 3, verse number 20. You know what we don't like about that, being that type of servant, is when you're a sacrifice, you don't really get to control what happens to you. That's a very scary place to be, <laughs> that God might take you through some bumps and hills and valleys that you're like, whoa, 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 I didn't sign up for this. I want to serve God. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's what you're doing. Yeah, but I'm down and I'm weeping and my family's going to pot and I'm, I don't know what's going on and my job is going this way. You signed up. <laughs> Have you not read the Gospels? <laughs> I mean, Jesus Christ walks in triumphantly into Jerusalem and then six days later they're ready to kill him. 
I mean, that's, that's the path of the Nazarene. That's a sobering thought. But it's not scary when you realize we don't get the crown here. The cross is here. The crown is for later. It's got to make it a little bit, folks, just a little bit, fourth and inches. All right, Mark 3.20, something else about this servant. He is the self-denying servant. I know my handwriting is atrocious, and you can't read it from far away, but self-denying servant. Look at Mark 3.20. It says there, And the multitude cometh together again, so that they could not so much as eat bread. How about chapter 6? Chapter 6, verse 31. And he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place, and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. He is the self-denying servant. He didn't even have time to stop and have a Panera bread. Couldn't, couldn't hit up the Chipotle on the corner. He couldn't do any of that stuff. He's just sitting there. He's like, they didn't have time to even break bread. They didn't have time to have lunch. They had no leisure. You know, that was self-denying. He meets a woman on a, on a well in John chapter 4, and the disciples walk in with all their food and stuff like that, and he says, hey, hey, he said, who gave him anything to eat? He goes, my meat is to do the will of my Father, which hath sent me, and to finish his work. Because that's what I'm feasting on. Wow. You know, we want to be comfortable. We want to be this. We want to be that. You know what's going to happen? We're going to live the same 70 or 80 years that guys like Hudson Taylor lived and George Mueller lived. And these guys were stressed and overwhelmed and attacked by cannibals like John Patton. Like, you know, we're going to live the same amount of time as these guys probably lived. The question is, what reward are you going to get on the other side of it? We want to make sure we got enough of this. We got enough food in the fridge. We got the right drinks. We got enough sleep. We got enough of this. We want all this stuff and all this stuff. We want to just be so nice. We got to be comfortable. The Bible says they had no leisure. They had no leisure. And again, I'm, I'm citing it a lot, but I was blown away reading about Hudson Taylor, how often he was overwhelmed and sleepless and anxious and grieved and broken while completely consecrated. <laughs> you and I couldn't hold his bags at the judgment seat of Christ. <laughs> couldn't hold his bag. I can't tie his shoes. He's, I'm glad M comes before T because... I don't want to be behind him at the judgment seat of Christ, guys like that. But it wasn't always comfortable. It wasn't always neat. It wasn't always pretty. You know, must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others sought to win the prize and sailed through blood, bloody seas? Right? I know it's sobering, but it's the truth. How about Mark chapter 6? I think this, yeah. This is the last characteristic. Nine. He is... The despised servant. Isn't that amazing? Now, I hope you esteem him. I hope you, you know, look at these things and say, wow, what a savior. God says, behold my servant, mine elect. And the Bible goes on to say, he is despised and rejected of men. Right? That's how people received him. Mark 6, verse 1. And he went out from thence and came into his own country and his disciples follow uh, follow him. 
And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, From whence hath this man these things, and hath in what wisdom is this, which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and Joseph, and of Judah, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? See, there are his other siblings. And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honors, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could do there, could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands on upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went around about the villages teaching. His own home, his own people, his own family, he's despised. And you know what? Those closest to you will think the least of you if you decide to serve God. Your moms, your dads, your unsaved friends, your lost relatives, they're going to think you're nuts. Strangers are going to thank you. People you lead to Christ are going to just uh, want to kiss your hand sometimes. And then you're going to go home and it's going to be like World War III. Because they don't understand. It was such for Jesus Christ. Despised and rejected of men, even by those closest to Him. Welcome to the club. Now, in Philippians 2, you don't have to turn there, we get, the mind of the servant. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That doesn't mean the mind, meaning sometimes it says, you know, we have the mind of Christ, and it refers to the Word of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But in Philippians chapter 2, it's the attitude of a servant, the heart of a servant, the mind of a servant. He says, hey, you want to see what a servant's supposed to think and be like? Let this mind be in you. And it describes the model servant, Jesus Christ. God gives us in Philippians 2 the pattern of the model servant. It's Jesus Christ, his attitude, his heart. And we have the choice to allow ourselves to follow that outlook or not. Let this mind be in you. Allow this attitude to permeate your attitude. Allow this mind to be the mindset that you adopt. Allow this heart to be the heart of your service and ministry. It's a choice. That's why it says, let. Right, John Calvin? You got a choice. You got free will. Let. Allow it. Yield to it. He's inside of you. Yield to it. Now, go all the way to Mark 16. Now, in Mark chapter 4, I said, this is all, right, from Mark 1.13 all the way to chapter, I'm sorry, Mark 1.14 all the way to chapter 13, it's the servant at work. And then chapters 14 and 15, it's the servant obedient unto death. Philippians 2 tells us that God's servant was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And in Mark chapter 14 and 15, the servant is obedient unto death. It's his work and obedience in death and sacrifice. Remember, what beast Mark aligns with, right? The ox. The beast of burden. And like the ox, Jesus Christ was ready for service, or sacrifice, or both. And his dying on the cross was a service. It was an invaluable service for us. It wasn't just an act he did. Okay, God, I did it. You know, 
put the cherry on top and your plan is consummated? No, what did he die? It says in Mark 10, 45, he, he came to minister and to give his life that ransom for many. Right? He came to die for us, right? Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. So that ox was slain, that beast was slain, that sacrifice was made, that, that beast of burden, that servant, Jesus Christ, his sacrifice was service. He was serving us even in death. He never stopped serving us, even in death. Jesus Christ. Now, what does that teach me? Your death to self can be for the life and blessing of someone else. Jesus Christ's death, didn't it bless you? His death blessed us. You're going to live forever. Your sins are forgiven. There's no enmity between you and God anymore. His Holy Spirit can now live inside of you. You have access by one Spirit unto the Father. You can partake of all those things in your heavenly calling. You are made partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Why? Because He died for you. Because He submitted Himself to the will of His Father and allowed His Father to make Him that sacrifice. That ox allowed Himself, that beast of burden, that servant, allowed Himself to be slain for us. Well, hey... I'm supposed to follow him and take up my cross. If I die to myself, a living sacrifice, I might not just bless the Father, I might bless somebody else. I might get a neighbor to Christ. I might help a family member see God is real. I might bring God some glory that maybe he wouldn't have gotten. It's all about dying to self. Your sacrifice is service. It's not just like this, you know, weird masochism that God has. I want to just see you in pain. No, it's that somebody else might be blessed. And then Mark 16. You know the servant, the risen and glorified Christ is still a servant. You believe that? I just want you to notice two things in Mark 16. First, I want you to notice in verse 7 how Mark draws attention to Peter, how he makes special mention of Peter, because Peter was his apostle, right? P Peter was the one that he was working on. It's interesting how he just points out Peter and makes him seem like he's separate from the rest of the apostles. Many reasons for that. One, at least, is that John Mark has got a special relationship to Peter. But notice in verse number 20, the last verse, that the risen Savior, at the end of the book, is still working with his servants. See that? And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them. It starts the book with his work. It ends, with, it ends the book and he's still working. You know who he's working now? You're his hands. You're his feet. You're his mouth. You're his eyes. You're his ears. You're the ones that he's working with now. You're his body. You're the ones doing the work now. Will you yield to it? I got one big idea. Go to Mark 6, and this one's going to be like a sledgehammer across your chest because it really hurt me. I, I don't always warn you, but I'm just warning you right now. Right, I, this is going to be, I'm proverbially just taking a sledgehammer, and I'm just going to swing it right at you, and it's just, it hurts. This way, maybe it won't hurt as much when I say it because I've built it up so much. But the one big idea... I'm sitting, here, I'm sitting here preaching at you about, about creature comforts as I drink my mango-flavored fruit cocktail drink, you know, from 7-Eleven. Uh, <laughs> yes, I'm serving. Uh, but here's the big idea. There is a danger when we lose sight of Jesus Christ and the attitude of a servant. And the big idea I want you to take away from this is the danger of when we lose sight of what it means to be a servant when we lose sight of the servant of servants, Jesus Christ himself. 
I'm going to tell you three things you can lose. There are three things the disciples lose. Do I erase it? I'll just, I'll tell them to you. Number one, first, you can lose the miracles of God. The miracles of God. Mark 6, 7. And he called unto them the twelve and began to send them forth by two and two and gave them power over unclean spirits. So they're working with God. That's a good place to be, right? Wouldn't it be nice to be used by God like that? Jump to verse 30. And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told them all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. Hey, I led this one to Christ Jesus, and I, I saw this miracle, Jesus, and I, I cast out this devil, Jesus, and I raised this dead person, Jesus, and all this stuff. And he, and he said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place, and rest a while, for there were many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. And they departed into a desert ship, place by ship privately. And the people saw them departing, and many knew them. And ran afoot thither out of all cities, and out went them, and came together unto him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw much people, and was moved with compassion toward them, because they were sheep not having a shepherd, and began to teach them many things. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him and said, This is a desert place, and now the time is far past. Send them away. They may go into the country round about in the villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. Please notice the danger of being used by God. Those disciples have, uh, they've been in the ministry a little bit. They've been doing a little something-something for Jesus, you know, casting out some devils, raising some dead, and they're all excited about that. But then when the multitudes come around, hey, we don't have bread for these people. Ain't nobody got time for that. You know. Tell them to get over there to, you know, tell them to go over to, you know, where they got to go. Trader Joe's or Key Food, whatever it is. Just tell them to go buy themselves some bread because we, we don't have any bread to give them. Wait a minute. Weren't you the guys that just healed the sick and, and, and raised the dead and did all these many miracles and saw the power of God upon your life? And now you, you think it depends on you? Now you think because you're reaching to your pocket and you don't have five nickels to rub together, you don't have enough bread to give them? Did you forget the miracle worker? Did you forget the source of your ministry? Did you forget where all the power came from? You thought it was you? You thought it was you, Pat? You're crazy. It was always me. It was never you. Right? All those good things you saw, it was never you. Those things you saw across your life, it was never you. Your son getting healed of cancer, that was never you. That was me. Those people getting saved, that was never you, it was me. You were just an instrument that yielded to my hand. And now I put you in a spot to show you what you're made of. You got a little too into yourselves, disciples. You missed the miracle. You forgot where it came from. You think it's depending on you. So you're like, well, we don't have any bread. You forgot the one who's the bread of life is right next to you? Keep reading. 47, jump to 47. There's a danger of trusting yourself. You can miss Jesus Christ when that happens and miss the miracle that he might want to reap in your life. You see Mark 6, 47. And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea and he was alone on the land and he saw them toiling and rowing for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he cometh unto them walking upon the sea and would have passed by them. But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit and cried out. Now, please notice that in verse 48, Jesus Christ comes to them in the fourth watch of the night. That's the end times, folks. That's the last watch. The last watch. 
We're in the fourth watch of the night. Jesus Christ is going to come back in the fourth watch of the night. In verse 48, you notice what they're doing in 48? They're tossed about by wind. Ain't that a picture of the church today? Getting ready for Jesus Christ to come back in the fourth watch? Tossed about by every wind of doctrine, like the body of Christ, is tossed about by all kinds of ideas. And in verse 48, I think it's 48, yeah, 48, they almost miss Jesus Christ. And they don't really recognize him until they get to the shore, verse 54. Some of the church might miss what God is doing, but when they get to that shore up there, then they'll realize who he was. But in verse 49, they're scared. They suppose they'd seen a spirit. They're crying out. Why? They're being led by their feelings now and not the word of God. They've lost the miracle. They're depending on themselves, not just their resources, but their feelings, their attitudes, their outlooks. They're like, oh, they're freaking out. And that's how a lot of the body of Christ is, led by feelings, led by emotions, led by their own winds that are driving them all over the place. And in verse 52, it says in verse 52, it says, they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. Their heart had gotten hard, and they forgot God's miracles. That's a sad testimony of the body of Christ in the last days. That we could get so used by God that we forget that it was God that was doing the using and we get so caught up in ourselves that we start getting scared, we almost miss Jesus, and our heart gets hard and we lose the miracle. Second thing you can lose, go to Mark chapter 8. You can lose the Word of God. Disciples can lose the Word of God and their relationship to the Word of God. Mark 8.14 is another feeding coming up. And it says in Mark 8, 14, Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. Neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. Huh? The disciples barely had any bread among them? Ain't that a picture? Ain't that a picture? You serve God a little bit, you know what happens? You stop taking bread. You stop growing in the Word of God. You start losing that relationship to the book. You carry it to church. You carry it to ministry. Yeah, you know where all the verses are, but that real hunger, that thing where you're carrying that Word of God inside you and carrying it around, maybe under your arm to read it at work or read it at play, you know what? It's gone. The disciples, why was there only one loaf among all those disciples? One guy's mooching off somebody's bread. That happens a lot. You're just mooching off somebody's spirituality. Why do God's servants have so little of God's bread among them? Right? They've lost the word of God. They're, yeah, they're casting out devils. Yeah, they're walking with Jesus. Oh, yeah, they, they know how to say amen when it's supposed to be saying amen. They know how to shake a hand. God bless you, brother. God bless you, sister. But they've lost the power of God. They've lost the miracles. And they've lost their relationship to the word of God. So then God needs them, when he needs them to help feed the, the, the 4,000 here, I don't have any bread. They've lost the word. And finally, Mark chapter 9, this is all the danger of losing the attitude of the servant and losing sight of the servant. Finally, you can lose the power of God in your life. Mark 7, 19. Mark, Mark, Mark 9, 17. I'm sorry. Mark 9, 17. And one of the multitude answered and said, Master... I have brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit. And wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth, and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. 
And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. He answereth him and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. The disciples had lost the power of God in their lives. They didn't have the power to take care of this devil. They didn't have the power to cast this thing out. And I know there's lots of reasons. I'm just preaching here a little bit. Just, but you see the picture. Here are disciples that have been walking with Jesus. They know the right thing to do, but they're doing it in their own strength. They've lost the miracles. They've lost the word. And now in chapter 9, they're powerless against the onslaught of the enemy. That, and we were talking about this in the prayer meeting on Tuesday night. We can't lose the power of God. Because if we lose God in all of our serving God, we've lost everything. Amen. We need God. Amen. You understand what I'm saying when I say that? Yeah. Oh, I need God to heal my, my back. No, no. We need God. We need sometimes to fall on our faces and just plead with Him not to leave us alone not to depart from us, not to write Ichabod upon our lives, our homes, our families, and our churches, because we need God, because God is our source. Mel Sabaka preached a message many years ago called God is our source, how God is the source of our power. He's our everything. Without God, we're dead. Physically dead, you fall like a bucket, like a pile of, like a bucket of dirt on the floor. And you fall spiritually if you don't have God. And the disciples lost the power of God in their lives. Oh, they were doing the right things. They were on ministry. They were doing visitation. <laughs> and they came up against a situation where they had no power with God, of God anymore in their lives. They, they were helpless to help this person, helpless to minister, because they had lost the power of God. You know why they lost the power of God? Mark 9, 33. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, what was it that ye disputed among yourselves, by the way? But they held their peace, for by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. While Jesus is cleaning up their mess, they're too busy fighting about who's going to be the greatest. Oh, man, you want to lose the power of God on a church, on a family, on, a, on, a, on, a, on your life? Just keep worrying about yourself and who's going to be the greatest, and God will take off faster than you could say Ichabod. Right? We need the heart of a servant, the attitude of a servant, the selflessness of a servant, the willingness of a servant to just say, Lord Jesus, here I am. I surrender all. I want to be like you. I want to follow you. I want to take up my cross and follow you. If you'd have me, I'll have you. Amen. With that heart, God says, I could do something. May not always be pretty. May not make a nice book, but it'll be God's power on your life and God in heaven, dividends will be paid for eternity if you're willing to serve him like that now. Jesus Christ, is a king forever because of how he served down here for a little space. And you will rule and reign as a king forever because what you give to God when you give God your little space down here. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. We thank you for this time together, for the glorious...